Here at Doxedo Hatfield, we are a family on mission. Make sure to get connected by joining us at one of our Sunday services. We hope you enjoy today's message. Great stuff. Dr. Hatfield, good morning once again. You can get out your Bible with me, and you can turn, no surprise there, to the book of Ephesians chapter 5. So we're in our second last week of this book, then we've gone right through the whole thing. We're finishing off next week as we are wrestling with what it means to be a multi-ethnic community in this city. Today deals with that topic kind of indirectly, but next week we're finishing off strongly with that. So we'll be reading from verse 17 there. In the closing paragraph of Nelson Mandela's autobiography called The Long Walk to Freedom, you just hear the absolute passion that this man walked out of that prison with. He was consumed with a mission. Just listen to this. He says, when I walked out of prison, that was my mission, to liberate the oppressed and the oppressor both. Some say that that has now been achieved, but the truth is that we are not yet free. We have merely achieved the freedom to be free as a country. The true test of our devotion to freedom is just beginning. I've taken a moment here to rest, to steal a view of the glorious vista that surrounds me, to look back on the distance that I've come. But I can rest only for a moment. For with freedom comes responsibility, and I dare not linger, for my long walk is not yet ended. Isn't that profound? You just hear the absolute consuming passion that he lived with. And maybe to ask myself the question, to ask you the question this morning, what would it look like if your life became consumed by something, some mission, some passion, some drive or goal, maybe even a person? Because all throughout this book of Ephesians, Paul calls that kind of consuming passion that drives your life, he calls it what? Your walk. He calls it your walk, and he says every single person on this earth is already walking. And your walk, in Paul's mind, is the direction of your life based on the convictions of your life. So what is it that you believe about life, about purpose, about God, about where we are going, and what the the joy and purpose of your life is supposed to be, and what are you doing in response? That's your walk, Paul says. So all throughout this book, he's been raising this issue of we walked in one way. If you are a Christ follower this morning, and he's saying now you have discovered a new walk in Jesus. So Ephesians 2, he says, you previously walked in the ways of the world. Ephesians 4, he said, I urge you to walk worthy of the calling that you've received. Or verse 17, no longer walk as those who do not know Jesus yet. Ephesians 5, he said, walk in love. Why? Because Christ loved you and he gave himself for you in Ephesians 5, 8. But now you are light in the Lord. You used to be darkness. So what? So walk as children of the light. So all throughout this book, Paul is saying that every person on earth, you have three options, basically, according to Paul, as to how you can walk. You can rebelliously walk away from God. You can religiously walk toward God. Or you can relationally walk with God. And when I'm rebelliously walking away from God, I say, I have no need of God's love in my life. When I'm religiously walking toward God, I'm saying, I'm striving, I'm trying my best to earn the love of God. But when I'm relationally walking with God, I'm saying, because of the love of God, I am fully alive. 
and my walk can never be the same. So here's the question for us that I want us to explore this morning. What if that consuming passion in your life, what if that was God? What if that thing that consumed you was God himself, God's truth, his grace, his righteousness, his mission and purpose in life? What would happen if that became your consuming walk? Let's explore that a bit. We're going to read a bit, comment a bit, dive into it. So verse 15, Paul says the following. Pay careful attention then to how you walk. So that's the last time he's going to raise this issue of the direction and conviction of your life. Pay careful attention, he says. And he says, how do you do that? Three things. Number one, not as unwise people, but as wise. Secondly, what? Making the most of the time because the days are evil. And thirdly, don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. So let's just wait there for a second. I think one of the greatest fears that people live with is that I will have wasted my life. Is that true? Everyone lives with this idea that I'm afraid that one day I'm going to realize I've wasted the one and only walk, the one and only life that I have. And Paul says you have to pay careful attention. Don't waste your walk. So the American pastor who's now retired, John Piper, he literally wrote a book called Don't Waste your life. And in it, he's, he uses this illustration that's become almost famous around the world called the seashells illustration. Because in it, he compares the lives of two people that he knew. The first was this 80-year-old lifelong single woman. She served in Africa as a missionary nurse for decades and died tragically in a car wreck while serving amongst formerly unreached people groups. Now, some people would say, depending on your worldview, that is a wasted life. You never got married. You never had some of the the things that everyone's running hard in their careers to achieve. What a waste of a walk. But John Piper says, I want to contrast that with a couple that I know. He says he he knows them personally. It's this kind of mid-50s American couple. They had done really well for themselves in business, and so they retired early in their mid-50s. And he says, now the rest of their life, the next couple of decades, made of years and months and weeks and hours and minutes, they were going to spend out in Florida, cruising on their nine-meter trawler, their little fishing boats. They're going to play softball recreationally with the people in that area, and they are going to every day collect seashells on the beach. And John Piper says, what a waste of your life. What a waste that your life has culminated in getting seashells from the beach. (laughs) He says, don't waste the one and only life, the one and only walk that you have. Listen to what he says. He says, God created me and created you to live with a single, all-embracing, all-transforming passion. And what is that? It's a passion to glorify God by enjoying and displaying His supreme excellence in all the spheres of life. Don't waste your life. Use it to the full for this one consuming passion, Jesus. And so he gives us three examples. He says, what what would that look like if you were to become consumed by a relationship with God? 
He speaks of wisdom. So he says, the first is if you walk with an eternal perspective in life. I don't necessarily want to be wise in the eyes of the world, of some of my colleagues and friends. That's not necessarily my highest goal. I want to be wise in the eyes of God. But secondly, he says, if you have an eternal urgency with your life, he speaks about making the most of the day. So I'm saying, man, I want to wring out every single drop, every second of my life. I want to spend in knowing Jesus, being known by Him, and living for Him. And thirdly, he speaks there about the will of God. So it's when I live with an eternal direction. He says, avoid foolishly just imitating the culture's newest sexual and financial and relational standards. Instead, I'm saying, I want to know what God's will is for every area of my life. Don't waste the one walk that you've been given. But Paul's like, that's, that's too academic. That's too up here. So I want to make it visceral that you will never forget this idea of being consumed by something. So he uses the strangest little illustration for that. Read with me as we go further. Verse 18, he says, and don't get drunk with wine. It's like, what? Wow, now we're with wine. Don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living. But, he says, contrast, but be filled by the Spirit. Be filled by the Spirit. What a strange picture. He contrasts these two things. He says, don't get drunk with alcohol, with wine, but be filled by the Spirit of God. Now, why is Paul saying that? Is he like raging against not drinking? No, not at all. What he's saying is when I am drunk with wine or alcohol, what's happening? I am under the fullest influence of that substance. I have come under the full influence of that substance. So it is driving me. It's dictating and dominating me. And so if I'm drunk, what happens? Then my walk is kind of wobbly. It's uncertain. I'm, I'm tending to do stupid things. I am under the influence, right? Many years ago, there was this very soft-spoken couple that did CrossFit with us. Just love having out with them. And they, they always had such nice little stories to tell about their life together. But then they moved to George. And in the meantime, they had a little kitty. And so a couple of years ago, it was my 10-year class reunion. And so this evening, all these different years, they're all there present. And as I'm walking around, I walk into this guy. I see him again. I don't even realize he was in my school a couple of years before me. And so we, we quickly catch up and he's on his way again. But then late in the evening, I've already gone to bed. Um, I'm with my wife and my kids, like literally half past two in the morning. There was this WhatsApp group for our matric year. And all these messages, a lot, a lot of debauched messages coming through that evening on that group. But this one struck me. Because as I opened it up, the comment was just, look at this guy. He's had way too much of a good time tonight. And I open up this photo, and it's this guy. And he's lying somewhere on our school grounds in the suit that he bought for that day. He's passed out. He threw up all over himself. And these guys are laughing at him. And I sit there and my heart is so sore because I think, man, this guy's wife and their child is waiting for him back in George. But he is so under the influence of this substance that he has lost himself. He's lost himself. 
He's filled with this one thing. But look at Paul. He brings this contrast, and he says, I don't want you to be filled with that. I want you to be filled by what? By God. I want you to be filled by God. Let every area of your life be filled by the truth and the love and the grace and the righteousness of God. Because in Paul's mind and all the other New Testament writers, to be filled with something means that I am consumed by that thing. So John 16, it says the people were filled with grief. Acts 13 says they were filled with joy. Romans 15 says they were filled with knowledge. And in Acts 5, the story of Ananias who steals from the early church, it says that his heart had been filled by Satan. So when I'm filled by something, it means that that is the driving force of my life. That thing consumes me, it drives me, it dictates and dominates me. And Paul says, I want you to realize that you can be drunk with, under the influence of many things in this world. Yes, alcohol is one of them, but you can be consumed by so many different things. You can be drunk on attaining financial freedom. That's the greatest drive of my life. You can be drunk on sexual pleasure. You can be drunk on trying to prove to my parents that I'm not a failure. You can be drunk on finding just a husband or a wife. You can be drunk on religious activities trying to heal your soul by giving enough. You can be drunk on political causes. If we can just make this change, I will also find a sense of wholeness. But the thing is, Paul is saying, is because those things consume you, like this friend of mine, you end up so disappointed because I gave myself to this man or this woman, and our marriage falls apart. God, where are you? I gave myself and my career 30 hard years in my field, and I've not attained what I so built my everything on. He says, when I'm consumed by something other than God, I realize what a weak God, money, sex, power, relationships, friendship, none of those things are bad things. They are good things, but they're not God things. No, Paul says, I want you to be under the influence of God. I want you to be so full of God that he seeps out of every single pore of your being. This is almost like John Cooper. He was this wild man, musician, and then he got radically saved. And he started this kind of metal slash pop Christian band. For those who didn't know, that's a thing called Skillet. And they wrote this one song that someone actually gave us the CD at our wedding. That's such a random like wedding gift, but we listened. That's like CDs, young people. That's this round thing that has information on it. But anyway, so we listened to that thing all the way like through our honeymoon. But this one song is literally called, You Are Better Than Drugs. What a title. He says, as someone who used to be consumed by things, I have become consumed by the ultimate thing, God. And if, that's supposed, you know, if that sounds philosophical or abstract to you, it's not supposed to be because God's saying my spirit is not an abstraction, it's personal. My spirit is a person. I want you to be consumed by a person. So when Jesus speaks of the spirit in John 14, he says, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another counselor, speaking of the Holy Spirit, to be with you forever. He's the spirit of truth. You know him Because he remains with you and he will be in you. That's so personal. 
Paul is saying that mankind is fully alive when I am consumed by the person of God. Because then my walk, what is walking? It's basically putting one foot in front of the other and not stopping. Isn't that like, that's the most basic. If, if some alien doesn't understand, like, I don't understand walking. Or an uh, anchor man, you remember that? Jogging? They couldn't understand what jogging is. Like, jogging, how does it work? So if you had to explain what walking is, it's literally putting one foot in front of the other and not stopping. And Paul says, when my walk, when my consumed passion in life is saying I live one step from Jesus, His finished work, His love, what He did on the cross has become my defining feature in life. I live from Jesus, but my next step is I live for Jesus. I live from Jesus, and I live for Jesus. I live from Jesus, and I live for Jesus. And make that the consuming passion of your life. He says, then man is fully alive. And why is that? Because if I'm drunk, what's happening? I'm not actually present. I'm not actually in the moment. I can't actually engage in person. So what many people who have walked uh, the difficult road of sobriety will say is that life literally looks different on the other side of sobriety. Jillian May, she writes for Medium, and she, she shares this hard-hitting and raw story in her article about her life becoming sober, having been ruled with alcohol for much of her life. She says this, for many newly sober people, the world can seem to flip on its head, and we see things in a new light. What we once thought was a great friend or cool place to hang out or our favorite time of day suddenly changes. Why? Because everything looks different now that I am sober. Paul is saying you can go through life so drunk on money or sex or your friends. You can go through life so drunk on trying to look a certain way that you actually miss what God has called you to do. That you miss this intimate walk of living from Jesus and for Him. Because I'm not in the moment. I don't see my marriage or my workplace or my circle of friends. I don't see these moments as church, as a place where I can be fully engaged with God because I'm drunk on something else. And Paul says, don't waste your life. Become consumed with God. God is not a Sunday thing. He is the animating principle. He is the one that we come under the influence of, and every single thing in my life suddenly looks different. On the other side of Jesus, everything looks different. That's what C.S. Lewis said. He said, I believe in Jesus as I believe in the sun rising. It's not just that I see the sun, but I see everything else by it. My marriage can never be the same. My money can never be the same. My work can never be the same because I've been sobered up by life itself, Jesus. So Paul says, I want to make this really practical for you. Let me give you a couple of examples. If the, if the big thing today is what would it look like to be so consumed by God that I start looking at every area of life saying, God, I want eternal perspective and urgency and direction. Paul says, let me just give you one or two examples to, just to stir your, your, your imagination a bit. So read with me further. He says this. He says, but be filled by the Spirit, verse 18. And he gives us three examples. He says, number one, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making music with your heart to the Lord. Secondly, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And thirdly, 
submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. Now, that third one specifically, he goes on to double-click on this idea of what does mutual submission look like in the Christian world? And he speaks about marriage, famous portion of Scripture, Ephesians 4 about marriage. He speaks about parenting, and then he speaks about work. But I want to say that I'm going to skip all of that today, and here's the reason why. Number one, that passage is filled with potholes, words like slavery and submission, and loving and giving to one another. And I'm telling you, if you do not do your homework on what those terms mean in the ancient writers' minds, you will trip yourself up. And that's why just a couple of weeks ago, for those who are in this church, you'll remember that we preached through First Peter. And there is an almost identical passage on marriage and work and the household where he uses those exact same terms. And I took him as much time as necessary to try and explain how we need to see those things. So I'm not going to do that again today. Please go back onto YouTube, onto our podcast feed, find that sermon and ask God, what does it mean if I want to make the very best? I don't want to be drunk in my marriage. I want to use every single second of my life to bring the most of Jesus into my singleness and marriage and to get the most of Jesus out of my singleness and marriage. God, I don't want to waste a single moment of my work, not a single day I want to leave the office not knowing that I brought the maximum amount of Jesus into my work and I brought the maximum amount of Jesus out of my work. So I'm going to skip that for an unorthodox option because I love that first one. Paul just puts together the three most random concepts. He speaks about worship, gratitude, and then this idea of submission in in marriage and family and parenting and in work. But I want us to just look for the last couple of minutes to this thing of worship. What does it mean in worship when I say, God, I do not want to be drunk on anything else. I want to be under the influence of God when it comes to worship. So what is worship? Worship is a very Christianese word. Isn't that true? If I asked you what worship is, We would get so many churchy answers. But I think most of us would think of what we just did with music. That's worship. But the Bible says worship is a full life response to God's actions and character. It's a whole self response to God's character and action. So that's why Romans 12, 1, Shal read this in our community group on Sunday. It says, therefore, brothers and sisters, Paul writing in Romans, and he says, In view of the mercies of God, because God has been so generous and good to us in Jesus, in view of that, I urge you, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Every area of your life, holy and pleasing to God, this is your true worship. So it means that my whole life, 180 degrees, is turned to God because of who He is And yes, that includes these moments when we are with song and word and music worshiping to God. But worship is much more than that. And yet the Bible spends so much time on this idea of corporate worship. When we get together to sing and to make a noise to God, to make His name great, it's an integral part of that. And listen to what Paul says here. Read with me again. And look at these two things. He says, number one, verse 19, speaking to what? One another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, but secondly, singing and making music with your heart to the Lord. Isn't that crazy? Paul says when we think about coming together as the church, we are always the church. Tomorrow morning when you wake up, you are the church. In your office, you're the church. In your marriage and your singleness, you are the church. 
But when we gather as the church and we sing in worship to God, Paul says there are two audiences present. The first is we sing to God to make His name great, to, to display back something of His glory and grace in our lives. But did you catch what he said there? There's another audience. Who's that? It's you and it's me. I sing not just for God. I sing for you. And we sing for each other, Paul says. Isn't that crazy? Why? Because when I sing, not so that you will see me, but when I sing to God and you see me authentically just expressing myself before God, what does that do to your heart? What does that do to your heart? When I see someone praying, last week Nicholas came up and he prayed, and he prayed with such authentic passion that I literally became teary-eyed. I just thought, God, I want what Nicholas has. What you are doing in his life, I want. Guys, when I came into the church, that was my first proper church. We didn't go to church when I was younger. And I came into the church as a 19-year-old, newlywed kind of Christian in that sense. And you know what I thought about worship? It was weird. Where in your life as a man do you sing out loud so that other people can hear you? That's a crazy thing. That's crazy. But you know what happened? Yes, there was teaching, and yes, there was a journey to walk, and yes, I had to mature and all of that, but you know what was the biggest difference for me? Is in that church, there was a bunch of middle-aged men who had matured in their faith, and they were not musicians. One of them was a, was a hand surgeon. One of them was a businessman. One of them was an electrician, and one of them was a teacher. And on and on, these middle-aged men, not because anyone asked them to, but because they had this burning desire on a Sunday when we worshiped, they would get up, and some of them would come and stand right in front of the church, and they would worship God passionately, not caring what anyone thinks about them. I'm here for Jesus. But you know what that did to my heart? I kept saying, I want what that guy has. I saw them raising their kids. I saw them speaking to their wives. I saw them doing business in an ethical way, and all of that inspired me. But something that challenged me was when we gathered as the church, I'm not here for appearances. I'm not here for what people think about me. I'm here for Jesus. And it changed my life. Because here was an authentic expression. No one was asking them to do this or that. It just came from them. And so that's why Paul says, you have to sing to God, what, with your heart. And he, when he's saying heart, he's not meaning emotions. You need a, some kind of emotion. Heart in the ancient AE spoke about the very center of your life. It's like the engine of your life was your heart. So what is he saying? He's saying sing and worship with everything that you are. Yes, including your emotions. Yes, including your intellect. Yes, including your convictions. Yes, including the fact that your car broke this week and that you are really struggling with your colleague and that your marriage is taking massive strain. Come with all of that and sing to God. Worship God and see what happens in this space. Guys, we cannot do this over the internet. There is something so powerful that happens when the church comes together to make the name of Jesus great. And it's a whole self-response. That's why the Psalms, they make a big deal about whole self-worship. Psalm 47 says, clap your hands, all you people. Shout to God with a jubilant cry. Psalm 134, lift up your hands in the holy place and bless the Lord. 
Psalm 95, come let us worship and bow down. Let's kneel before the Lord our maker. Psalm 100, let the whole earth shout triumphantly to the Lord. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before Him with joyful songs. Acknowledge that the Lord is good. Enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him and bless His name for the Lord is good and His faithful love endures forever. Does that raise up something of a sourpuss mindset in your heart? Do you feel baptized in lemon juice when you hear that? Do you think one of the the fruits of the Spirit is to be down and out? No, it says when we come before God, we come with our whole selves authentically giving our everything to Him. Our everything. I'll never forget this one American author saying, being in church one day and this lady sitting in front of her, her kid is with her and he's just a child. He's a five-year-old. So he's busy and he's laughing and he's doing all this stuff. And at one stage, he's, he's, he's just laughing and he's smiling and she turns to him and she says, hey, we're in church. Stop smiling. That's how many of us, I can't see it at the moment, but that's how many of us enter into church. It's like, okay, it's that serious moment of the week. And maybe it's because I'm too serious of a person, but can I tell you, it's supposed to be a moment where we say, God, I am going to bring my whole self for you and for these people. You need me and I need you. Do you see what Paul is saying? When I'm drunk with everything else but God, these moments are wasted. These moments become negotiated things. Ugh, you know, I do have a bit of time today. Let me go to church. Paul is saying, don't waste your life. Don't waste your friend, your brother and sister in Christ's life. We need you and you need us. I need you on a Sunday morning to bring your whole self before God because guess what? I may be set last night and Shay and I maybe had the biggest fight of our lives about finances or about our kids or we're struggling. And you know what happens when I pitch up here and I see one of you guys saying, God, I'm bringing my whole self to you. It blesses me. It challenges me. When I am not drunk, but I'm present, I've got an eternal perspective about this morning. I've got an eternal urgency. God, I don't want to miss or waste a single Sunday morning with your people because they need you and I need them and we need you, God. We are going to be a people who worship Isn't that a different, a very different picture than what we used to about Christianity? Because if you ask most people what Christianity is about, what will they say? It's about trying to be a good or a better person. But that is literally the exact opposite of the Christian faith. That is called religiosity. That's when I'm doing religious things from guilt, culture, or from feeling obligated so that God would love me and bless me. But at the center of the Christian faith, we see Jesus, who is God and man, coming into our situation to deal with our brokenness, to deal with our sin and our rebellion, to deal with the fact that I'm so drunk with my career that I will sacrifice anything and everyone on the, on the altar of it. He comes to deal with that. Why? So that we would once again be in relationship with God so that we would be in relationship with God. What if that thing that I became consumed by was God himself? 
Isn't it amazing that when Jesus calls his first disciples, Matthew 4, 19, he doesn't say to them, sit so I can teach, stand so I can reprimand. What does he say? Follow me. Follow me. Know me. 1 Peter 3, 18 says, Christ suffered once and for all the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? So that he might bring you to God. That you may know him. When Jesus prays in John 17, he says, this is eternal life. Some of us think eternal life is going to sit on a cloud with a diaper and a harp and just be there forever. Jesus says, no, that's culture. You know what eternal life is? It's that they may know you. The one true God and the one that you have sent, Jesus Christ. So when I am drunk with something else in closing but Jesus, you know what happens? Then I examine my life carefully as Paul says. And I'm driven by religiosity. I'm driven by these other things. You know what then happens? I look at money and I ask this question. How generous must I be so that God would bless me or at least not curse me? Or I look at sexual relationships and I ask, how far am I allowed to go in bed before it's sin? I look at church and I ask, how little do I have to attend so that I'm in good standing? Or regarding my time, how much of my life can still basically center around myself and not get me in trouble with God? But when I am under the influence of God, when I'm filled by the Spirit, when He becomes the highest priority of my life, then I look at money and I say, God's generosity in Jesus is unmatched. So how can I bring maximum glory to God and maximum blessing to people through God's finances? I look at sexuality and I say, God is the creator of sexual joy. So what is the world's foolishness in blind, unrestrained sexual consumerism versus what's God's wisdom for flourishing? I look at church and I say, Jesus has graciously and wisely placed me in a family. So how do I turn my time and my treasures and my talents away from self-centeredness towards self-sacrifice for family and mission? And I look at my time and I say, Jesus loves me and he purchased my life with his blood. So how can I make sure that every single second of my short walk, my short life is spent knowing Jesus, loving Jesus, obeying Jesus and following Jesus? Don't waste your life, Paul says. Maybe just this thought. I love the fact that Paul says one of these fruits of being consumed by God is that you are thankful, listen to this, always for everything to God. Isn't that crazy? Who's thankful for everything always to God? And I want to challenge us. That's not an action. That's a posture. I can only be thankful to that that I trust in. I'm thankful for my work if my work is my identity. I'm thankful for my beautiful wife if my beautiful wife is what makes me strong, secure, and significant. But Paul is saying those are good things. But when God is the greatest thing in my life, then even in stage four cancer, I'm thankful in everything. Even in retrenchment, I'm thankful in everything. Because the greatest thing of value has not been taken from me. And that's God. And maybe this morning you say, I don't have that. I have church. I have religious practices. 
I've run away from God rebelliously for so many years of my life, but I do not have that. You don't have something to be thankful for. You know, that's actually, that's exactly what happens. Dr. Aronson, he's this distinguished professor of humanities at Wayne State University. He's an atheist, and he says he walks in nature, and he struggles because his heart just wants to erupt with thankfulness. But he says, to whom? What am I truly thankful to with my whole life? Paul says, don't waste your life being drunk on anything but Jesus. Come under the influence of the grace and the love and the truth. Become fully alive. Let's pray. Jesus, I want to just pray this morning for anyone who says, I don't have that. I do not have that deep thankfulness for a personal relationship with God. And I pray right in their seat where they are, God, that they would give over their life to you. They would invite you in and say, Jesus, may the truth of your life, death, and resurrection become the truth of my life. I want to know you as Savior and King. And I pray for us as a church. God, may we not waste a single second of our work, of our marriage, of our gathering as the church. But may we live with a consuming passion called Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.